Hi, I'm Ryan, the Sparkcraft Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the last player. I'm Helen, the unseen storyteller. I'm Jared, the Flashback Game Master, and together we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we start part three of our review of Blades of the Dark. We're going to go ahead and pick up with the things that Helen loves about the system. Helen, take Blades it Blades in the dark. Yep. Not of the dark. Uh, I'm just going to use a different connecting word every single time I do it. It's going to be blades with the dark, blades from the dark. Which is appropriate. Sure, that'll be your thing. Yep. That's your thing. It's appropriate because we are, of course, now the Blades in the Dark podcast. It's true. <laughs> Clearly. We really are, though. Okay, hopefully that will not be true. But we will love this game. <laughs> Go ahead. It's true. Uh, the buildup to this point has been very interesting. <laughs> it took us a long time to get here, but here we are. Okay, well, so one of the things, and we've we've talked a little bit about the the philosophy that's elsewhere in the book as relates to gaming in general, but one of the things that I think really comes out in this game in the way that they've set up uh, engagements, in the way that they've set up flashbacks, is the assumption of PC competence, and it's something that you that you don't necessarily think about as much in other games, but when you spend the extra time in a game planning hypotheticals, you know, in or out of character that may never happen, and then all of your plans are, are for naught because something completely came out, something came completely out of nowhere, or, you know, you, you fail a role and it's, it's some kind of bumbling mess, there's none of that in this game, and that is discouraged. One of the things that is both in the setting and in the mechanics is the assumption that the PCs are competent professionals at the thing that they are doing, and it lets the story go from there. There's no bumbling about, there's no nonsense, there doesn't have to be those things except where those choices are made by player and storyteller to enhance the narrative are less interesting, generally speaking. So when there is a failure in game, one of the things that they encourage you to do in the mechanics is to make that an indication of how great the challenge actually is. So rather than, well, you failed because you, you, you know, something happened that it, the character was in some way inadequate or unprepared for a challenge, their foe was in fact much more powerful than expected. Something, some dramatic change of circumstances occurred, the narrative became twisted in some fashion. The point being, it's less about what the PCs did wrong and more about how high the stakes are. So this is the first time I've ever seen this in a game. Like I've seen games where the assumption is that the PC sucks, at least at the beginning. And I've seen the assumption where like, the PC is a superhero, you know, there's Exalted where you're just flat better than everybody. But this game comes from the assumption that you are competent and in over your head simultaneously. And I've never seen that assumption in a game before. And I think it's awesome. It like narratively sets us up in a really great place. Like, no, y you're really good at this. But also, you're in over your head. Yeah. They talk about that with the with the dice you roll. Um, this getting back into the connection between the me mechanics and the narrative. You do have a fifty percent chance of some kind of success when you roll just a single die. That's because your character is expected to know their business, but they're also going to take a hit. Yeah, I, I love that assumption. I love that that like, no, you're good and the world is still hard. Unlike Exalted, where it's like you versus three hundred mooks. Well, that's not a fair fight. They should have brought 500 more moves. I've seen a trope in some games that I wish I saw more often. You have a low-level enemy oppose characters who have gained some experience. And, you know, maybe it's like, okay, the level 10 PCs in D&D fight some orcs. Normal orcs. Or whatever. But just as a nice contrast to, like, this, you know, if you started at level 1 in D&D and now you're level 10, a normal orc is no longer a challenge for you. They're a speed bump, but it's a nice contrast, right? This is how far you've come. This is what you can do now. Now, instead of being terrified that, you know, the orcs are coming into town and setting things on fire, 
you're going out and you're fighting the army of orcs by yourself. And I, I really like in Blades in the Dark where there's just the assumption of you're competent, you're good at your job, and the only reason that you're still in danger is because you live in a really terrible world full of horrors. Yeah, and the only way to have any potential of advancement is by taking these extreme risks. You're not going to be able to live comfortably if you do the easy jobs that you did to train this hard. You're going after the big scores, and the big scores are well protected, right? You have to push yourself to succeed. Okay, hit the ground running. Another thing that I like is the whole book is designed to get you going quickly. Um, and when we eventually do talk about setting, one of the things that we can touch on is everything is right there. It's laid out for both you, the player, and you, the storyteller. A lot of the things that the storyteller has to do is make stuff up on the fly in response to things the players have. No problem. There are word banks in the book for the storyteller to use. There are random tables for, uh, if there's an NPC, to generate names, to generate outfits, to generate anything you want to help you drive the narrative forward with just, with just a few little key details spattered in and here to sort of bring the setting to life. As a GM, as somebody who, who mostly GMs and who is also a nerdy, nerdy engineer, for most games, I make these for myself. I have props, nouns, random villains ready to go. I make those lists for myself so that when my players are like, hey, this is a blank. I'm like, ha ha ha, consult my list. It is a like, right? Um, for a game to have that for me is glorious. That's all. It's like, oh, I don't have to make this chart for myself. You already did it. We can be friends. And I mean, I think it goes back to how approachable this game is. I mean, I, you know, as an experienced role player, I have lots of tools to generate a sort of information and lots of ideas and blah, blah, blah. If I was newer and I wasn't sure if I really want to invest in this, every little bit counts. Like, that helps. And it's, like, it's not a crutch. It's absolutely just, like, you can use these things. You should use these things. Use all the tools that you want. It's okay to use word banks. You should do that. I also like, so they talk about when you first start your game. You know, set the, the players down, explain the world briefly, talk about the different playbooks, have everyone make their characters. And then they actually provide, but even if you don't use the one they provide, they suggest just start immediately on a mission. Tell them, great. You're this group, you're here, this is your first score, how do you want to approach it, and let's make that engagement roll. And to just immediately get them on the ground running, and as you introduce facts and hooks, they can then, after this is done, uh, start to explore the world and ask questions and have individual things going. But they really, really, really want you to just start as fast as possible. The other thing is the playbooks can be fairly interchangeable. Uh, and this kind of gets into a, something that you could probably talk for a long time about, is protected niches for, uh, versus shared responsibility when you're building a character. You, if you want to have the thing that your character is good at, finding out that somebody else at the table, for whatever reason, built their character and they happen to be better at the thing that you wanted to be yours, that can always lead to some drama. It's one of the reasons why we have a session zero. But there's a good balance among the playbooks of, first of all, there's, there's kind of the expectation that you can do a little bit of everything. It's why it's your playbook, not your class. These are the things you maybe specialize in more, but you can do a little bit of everything. And they do a good job differentiating even just a little bit between some of the more similar characters. For instance, the cutter versus the hound or the spider versus the slide and they give you enough that you can flesh out in different directions so you you really aren't constricted into one box and there's enough overlap that maybe if you don't have a slide in the party maybe the spider and a particularly talkative uh cutter could make up the difference they have since we haven't defined those up until now, can you define for me a spider and a slide for those who aren't obsessed with this game? Because this game is about scoundrels, it is about putting together a heist. They've done a good job of picking different scoundrelly tropes 
to to distill out. So you're not going to have like just your standard maybe D and D classes. You, they've done a good job picking the different tropes that go into becoming the different playbooks. The spider is the influence build, the influence character. The, the spider has. Uh, has political connections, has financial connections, may not be a, a direct and sociable character, may not be out there, you know, schmoozing with other people, but they have enough resources that they can be a power behind the scenes. It's the Nick Fury. They're the person with the plan, with the fingertips always crossed, like always steepled. That's the spider. Or... If you prefer the kingpin, yep. right? Sure. Uh, sure. Whereas your slide is your more traditional face, and they can absolutely have elements of that movers and shaker behind the scenes, but they are more expected to be a charisma-based, interactive kind of persuader or intimidator, however you want to build them. On the other side, your cutter and your hound are sort of two different ways that you could do a, a character based around violence to avoid using just the term fighter. Your cutter is expected to be a bit more of a, or expected is the wrong term. Your cutter is set up to be a bit more of a brawler, physical force. Your hound is more methodical. They are a sniper, they are a tracker. They might use different weapons. They have a different approach. That is kind of how you draw the line. But again, they might have a lot of the same skills that the cutter has they just can also move in other I think you said a word there that is really important to how they differentiate the playbooks. It's not about your role, it's about your approach, right? In D&D, your class is your role. You know, this is what you are supposed to be for the party and this is all you can be. For each of those roles, for your fighter, for your mage, for your mastermind, whatever it is, there are multiple playbooks that can be that. Your playbook is what approach is your character going to take to doing these things? The spider is going to manipulate people from behind the scenes and is going to use their connections to get it done. And the slide is going to go lie in somebody's face and steal the thing from them to get it done. But you're still both manipulating and being that sneaky character. That emphasis on approach is a really cool way to define your character archetypes. It also it reinforces one of the mechanics that they have set up. First of all, they, they, this is one of the reasons why they call them actions instead of skills. These are just actions you take and are particularly good at. But also, you can switch out your playbook. It's not a big deal. It's a matter of role play. And if your character begins to drift in such a way that you find that maybe... Uh, in the course of the narrative, you find your spider is slipping more toward the supernatural and the occult. They might move more into the role of a whisper. You swap out your playbook. There are rules in the book to do that. It's about role play. And you can start picking up more of these supernatural elements that come with the whisper template. The, um, that one being focused on interacting with ghosts, interacting with weird stuff, and so forth. This is literally, I know we're talking about the stuff that, that Helen likes, but this is literally my favorite mechanic in the game. I love that it is a playbook and not a class. I love that you can start with the thing that you think you want your character to be, but if you find your character picking up a new interest because of something happening in the game, you can totally switch and be just as good and not be punished for having started somewhere else. I adore It's this. almost expected. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact... Even if you don't find yourself like, well, I don't know if I want to give up the stuff I'm doing. I still like my role. I just like to dip my toes into that. You can take a veteran advance, which is what they call it when you you can take a, an ability from another playbook. Or your character can just which overindulge I, and not be available for the next heist. And you can be like, let me try out, right. you know, um, a cutter. This time. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so the reason that I said Kingpin for the spider, uh, I think it works really well because he's a master manipulator. And that's what he wants to do. But he is more than capable of going toe to toe when the time comes for that. It's true. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a that's a fair point. Also, that's a little playing against type. I'm the manipulator. I'm also the brawler, which is not a combination you see very <laughs> often. No, but it's always fun when it happens.
And having the option to just change midstream and go where the narrative takes you means that you're not going to find, well, you built wrong. I'm sorry, this isn't the optimum build. And now you're out, you know, X number of XP and you know, you're gonna have to make up the difference. You just can't right. do that here. You just can't, like the game won't let you do that to yourself. And it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because even if you make a character that doesn't specialize in anything and you take a wide variety of skills possible, by doing that, you're upping your attributes. So you're making yourself very resistant to taking damage, which is an interesting character choice. Um, so they really did try and make it like, no, you're going to be competent. You don't get a choice in the matter. You have to be. And if somehow you find a way to make yourself not competent, like, which would take some work, but if, if you somehow do it, all you have to do is role play and you can shift everything around and be competent. You know What's what, Brian, yeah. I think that's yeah. our challenge to you for the next come up with the least competent Blains in the Dark character. Okay. Uh, right now, immediately, I'm going to say uh, a whisper who has as low a tune <laughs> as possible and take all of the stuff to let me do magic and interact with ghosts, but not have the action rating. <laughs> that sounds... Yes. Okay, moving yeah. on. What else Damn. do you like? Uh, clocks. <laughs> Let's talk We've about talked clocks. about clocks. We have talked about clocks. We've talked a lot about clocks. I just think they're neat. <laughs> That's all that I need to say about clocks. I think I think I, we've said it. I think I we've do, said it all. I do like clocks. I think they're a great. We have said it before. They're a good visual cue for the players. They're they're very easy method for the GM to like keep track and their notes of stuff. We talked before. Jared said that when he thought about going back and into the game he's been running for five years and adding them, he almost threw up. But I think that's the issue of like realizing you have to retroactively go through these 30 pages of notes and like, okay, they're at a four, six on this and a one, eight on that one and retroactively assign uh, percentages to, to all of the stuff that's been happening. And, and I will yeah. say you have 30 pages of notes, so I'm yeah. not sure what you're concerned about with the 12 clocks. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. He doesn't want his room to be covered in clocks. That's all, Helen. <laughs> I think that might be honestly <laughs> it. I'm really worried that I'm going to like look down at my desk and just see like eight pages of clocks and then have a mental breakdown. Right? Like That's what I'm worried this is, about. This is more of a self-preservation thing. <laughs> I just want to see like your wall of actual clocks that like we've been playing so long. You've just amassed a bunch of weird clocks that mean different things. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. It's like, I'm just going to be like, my wife is going to come in and be like, what are you doing? I'm making clocks. <laughs> and then she's never going to talk to me again, right? Like, that's I mean, in all fairness, I swear that that's probably happened with, like, replaced clocks with Transformers or maybe Warhammer well, models. Did. You but she's accepted that of me. But she, she knew that going in. If I, like, add clocks to this, it's going to be a little Straw that can't broke the camel's back. Yeah, it just feels a little more super villainy than nerdy, and that's ah, what I'm okay. <laughs> you did tell us okay. the story when she walked in on you detail cleaning your transformers with a uh, Q-tip at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, she just sighed and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's fair. When a character gets to a certain point, it can sometimes feel more difficult from the storyteller side to keep scaling challenges and keep throwing bigger and bigger problems at it. And because it's, I'm not going to say it's so easy for characters to you know, become good at everything, um, because that's always going to be a matter of XP, I will say that one of the systems the game encourages is that it, we've, and we've touched on it before, it's a stable of characters. So if characters are perhaps getting a little bit too, too good at stuff, you can always just reset the game a little bit by just playing a different round of characters just for a little while to give yourself some space uh, rather than you know having to steadily amp up to run whatever game it is and for like high level pcs one of my favorite things about the system relates to that it's the idea that you're going to take trauma you are you are going to spend stress your stress bar is going to fill up and you're going to take trauma eventually if you play the same characters long enough you're going to fill out all of your traumas and it's going to warp your character to the point where they can no longer be played a lot of games have this mechanic 
and it just sort of like if your character gets corrupted, well, they're now just you know, bye, a thing of chaos, and bye. But here it says when this happens and someone's trauma fills up, you have two options: they can either go into retirement or they can go to prison. And if you send them to prison, if your gang just sells them out and sends them to prison, you can lower your wanted level. And I love that idea of like, well, are we going to set Jimmy up in the bar? And Jimmy's going to go from being a PC to NPC bartender. Or are we going to send Jimmy to prison so that life is easier for the rest of us? And I think that that's like a legit interesting story thing that's gonna come up and i i love those storytelling because you can also go to prison and there's a whole separate set of connections in prison so don't you can make in prison right there's a little mini game for being in prison including and i i promise i i won't reference daredevil in every episode but including the like no we've set ourselves up um our time in prison isn't very difficult we can still do stuff in prison it's not too bad and you can go to prison at any time. Character can go yes. to prison at any okay. time to change the either as a as a function of having a wanted level or to you know, reduce wanted or heat. They they do not simply have to be at the highest point on the trauma track, uh, but there are you you definitely have those options. I just loved that option, like because in contrast to say like the the 40k system that we talked about before dark heresy if dark heresy when your corruption gets to a certain point you are just a thing of chaos now you have no control your party has no choice your gm just does something bad with your character that's it and i love that like no even when a character maxes out on this air quotes bad health track we still get to have something interesting happen, yeah right you don't just become a mindless monster we still get to do something cool with you I also think it's interesting. I mean, this is, it's a dark game. You know, it's a dark setting. You're in over your head. Everything is stacked against you. But even still, the player has complete autonomy over whether their character dies or not. Because you can always say, I roll to resist the harm you're doing to me. Even if you have no harm left. I mean, you could, you know, critically succeed and not take any. But even if that's not an option, or even if you fail, well, you fail, you get taken out you gain another level of trauma. And if that's your last one, you decide what happens to you. But that still means that what in the end happens to your character is solely in your hands as the player. And I love like all the different options. Like I've already thought of like what would happen with my first eight characters who filled their trauma up. And like, you better believe that one of them's going to be the crazy homeless dude who's shouting doom and gloom on the corner. And I love that that's a thing that our characters are not going to have to process. Like he was one of the greats and now he's here. And I adore yeah. that idea. Well, and it's also, I think it's a great storytelling thing of death is off well it's not off the table you can choose to have your character die but it's entirely optional so that means all the things that could happen to you are still bad like you don't want them to happen to your character but at the end of the day you have the freedom to decide well you know they've gone insane or they've been hurt in a way they can't do the thing that they used to be able to do or, or whatever they would they get sold off to prison to lower a wanted level. Well, and death isn't the end because there are mechanics for ghosts. There are you mechanics for hulls. Which yeah, they uh, yeah, and they do have the rules to play that. And vampires. Yeah. Yep. Although the vampires are. Well, because remember, everyone in the setting becomes a ghost unless you, you catch their body quick enough. So you could always become something else. Yay. Yay. Anyway, there are a lot of things that can happen to you other than death. More and more games are leaning on this NPC not having stats thing. And every time we've talked about it on the show, I've said that I, I enjoy it. But one of the bigger concerns that I think has been a problem in every other game where NPCs don't have stats for me except this one is like it gets really hard to represent a particularly talented enemy. And like Lancer does an okay job of that. The system present in Blades for the Dark is my favorite approach to that. If you find an enemy who is particularly good at a thing, they are going to get a preemptive attack on you and you're going to have to roll resistance before you even start. And we mentioned that in the mechanics and I just love it. You walk into the room and you want to get into 
an argument, you want to try and turn the room against somebody who is a master manipulator. As soon as you open your mouth, everybody in the room already hates you and already thinks you're there to do something bad and you've got a role to resist and figure out what to do. Or you go to... you know, shoot somebody who is a master duelist and they've already shot your gun out of your hand. You've got a roll to resist or, you know, spend stress to do it. I love that as a way to make NPCs feel badass when it's necessary without having to create a bunch of stats for them. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think they really did a great job with utilizing the two scales of how effective will your role be and the position that you're in to really make statless enemies come alive. Yeah, it's awesome. And I've I've never seen another game do it as well as they did it. And that's all I wanted to say there. The next thing is like, you're a heist game. There is no, we're just going to hide out and leave the city for six months to let the heat cool down. Everything about this system, and we're going to get to this a lot more when we talk about setting next time, this entire system is designed to constantly ratchet up the tension, and I enjoy that. It does do a great job of showing that you are caught in a system that is far older and far more complex than anything you may necessarily understand or be able to overcome. And there are a lot of games that do some version of that who do like, the system is against you. But what I love here is the system isn't against you. The system is against everybody. Yeah, you're an ant. Against everybody. Yeah, it's crushing you out of, you know, not out of intention, but just out of how big it is. There's also, when you roll really poorly on a roll, when you roll like a a one to three on a desperate roll, or I think it's... I think it's just that it might it might also occasionally happen on other roles but the idea of a lost opportunity not just have you not done what you are trying to do here but you can no longer attempt to do what you are trying to do here I'm trying to pick my lock through the door I fail badly enough I have a serious complication and the lost opportunity I have not only broken my lock picking set I have broken the door it is now impossible to pick our way through the door it doesn't mean we can't get into the room. It doesn't mean we can't find another way. This system is very clear that you always need to prevent an opportunity for your players to succeed. But that opportunity of me opening anything else with my lockpicks is gone. My lockpicks are now ruined or we can't get into this door. And I love the idea that you're going to have to create new opportunities for yourself as your primary options disappear as you continue to fail forward. I actually, I really like this too. I even like how it's used in the other way. So one of the examples they give is if you start out with a really good position, uh, which lowers the consequences of failure, instead of getting hurt, your consequence may just be that you lose the opportunity. The example in the book, and I think I, I said this last episode, you set up on the rooftop with your rifle, you're going to take a shot at someone who doesn't know you're there. If you fail, you don't get hurt because they didn't know you're there. They can't react that fast. But, like, their bodyguard shoves them out of the way, so you no longer have the shot. You can't try and just shoot them again. You're probably going to have to run away, but you're not immediately going to to take some damage or be shot at or be engaged in combat. So the last rule that I really want to emphasize that I adore is it's simply the protect system. They just You can always take the protect action, which means if another player is about to be harmed, I can... If, if one of my teammates is about to be harmed, I can automatically just say I'm going to protect them and take the harm on myself. It is always an option. It is always a rule. And it, like, really helps make the game feel like a team game. Yeah. Like, if somebody gets yeah. in trouble, anybody can choose to help them. No matter, like, where they are, how they're positioned, you can always do the hero dive in front of the thing. That's always an option. I like all the teamwork. They do a great job of keeping them minimal and thereby very effective. I do love all of them. I don't want to diminish that. But this one in particular, you're never going to find yourself in a situation where, like, the person who walked first into the room is going to get trained down by the enemy and is you better send your tank first. I, I love that, like, no. Just do whatever's better for the story. And if somebody gets focused by the enemies, you can always say, no. Well, as someone who normally plays like a cleric type or a physically weaker character, I love this because this doesn't mean that I'm going to have to dump points just so I don't get, like you're saying, one-shotted. Yeah, it's really great. It's really nice. I, as the character who has more resistance against this sort of thing, can just step in Which front of Which is exactly right? what you want as the player to do. 
and I want to I want to be the weak one who then heals you. I mean, you know, that's not really a thing in this game, but the basic idea is there. It encourages teamwork in combat, and rather than you know everybody standing in a circle around the target, hitting, <laughs> you know, which which can sometimes happen in 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 other situations. And not just combat. That's important sure, to note. Sure. If you really screw up a, a social role, someone the the slide can step in and go, nope, everything's fine, and smooth those feathers over. Or you know, if you activate the I don't know the magical time bomb, the whisper can step in and and take the brunt of the the insanity it would do to you and then try and, and start to deal with that and speaking of this like that mechanic and all the mechanics oh what we said it before and i'm gonna say it as many times as i can because i love this word there's a great looter narrative in this game that word just makes you uh, feel smart oh god it? it does it does make you such feel a good one and soon it will make you all feel smart too <laughs> uh, <laughs> just whip, whip it out uh, at parties the yeah. Excuse yeah. me, sir. The Ludo narrative. Just shut up. Yeah, the Ludo, <laughs> um, Ludo narrative dissidence is really yeah. All the mechanics in this game were were clearly put in for the sole reason of making you feel like a lucky scoundrel in over their head. I have a feeling that th when they were playtesting things, I have a feeling that there was definitely moments where like. This is interesting, but I don't think it adds to it. So they just stripped it right out. It really feels like a lean system that does exactly what it wants to do. And I love it. It's oh, very it's well edited. It's so clear that they had a lot of uh, humility when they were editing this. Because I think you see a lot of systems where someone wasn't willing to let their pet system go. And they clearly had no issues. So I don't know about... The rest of you, but I have downloaded a few of the Forge in the Dark games to look at them. Scum and villainy. Um, scum and villainy. Uh, scum and villainy. Fistful of Darkness. Uh, Brinkwood, which I mentioned last time, uh, or Jared did. And I, I really like all of them that I've read. They are very innovative in how they take the core system and alter it to to fit what they need it to be. Uh, in Scum and Villainy, instead of having a crew type like you know assassin or a cult in Blades in the Dark. Uh, your crew type is your ship type. And that, that's just interesting. And it, it still makes sense, right? That informs the type of missions you want to do in Scum and Villainy, the sci-fi game. But it's it's just a different way to interact with the setting. In Brinkwood, instead of picking a playbook that is your class, you pick a magical mask that you made a deal with the Fae for that gives you special abilities as you go and fight the vampire aristocracy. They're all such neat and different settings. Uh, it's There are definitely some sets of mechanics where, you know, I can I might look at other games that use those mechanics well, or I can just use the book that I have already purchased and adapt out. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I will definitely buy these other settings because I want to see what's in these other books. Like, I absolutely yeah. want to support these creators and making make more books using this setting. Please do so. I will purchase them. The only other one I have read is Scum and Villainy, and, like, I want to play Scum and Villainy right now. Like, right now. Like, we could just interrupt the yeah. podcast and play. I have a character concept. I may have gone to Pinterest earlier. I also got to say, I really love the loadout rules. They're such a simple system. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's great, right? You just pick at the beginning of a score... What is your loadout level, light, medium, or heavy? And that determines how many effectively initiative slots you have that you can retroactively say, oh, no, I brought a gun. Totally had the gun on me the whole time. It's a nice balance between the, the realism of needing tools to do your job, but also not making people sit down like, okay, so I need to take the lock pick with me and I need to take a weapon and I prefer to take some armor and we have to have some kind of light source and just like making a list. I think it's a nice balance. I even enjoy the, the different levels have different benefits or well, have fewer penalties really. Um, if you have a light loadout, you don't get much. But you look like a normal person walking around. If you take a medium loadout, you have like a bandolier of stuff on you or a backpack. You're obviously carrying things with you. You're a little bit more suspicious. And if you have a heavy loadout, you're walking around in like armor with a with a rifle that's in your hand. You're Rambo. And you have like a shovel and a hammer on you. And you're clearly up to no good. Yes. With, with a heavy loadout, you're Rambo, right? Like Yes. And this mechanic I, I ties that. directly into flashbacks too because what do you have? Well, it's on my sheet and here's the flashback and we're good to go. 
And it's a system where the, each playbook interacts with it because each playbook has a special list of items that only they can take, either that have a lower loadout or have a higher quality of tier than is normal. Uh, so I mentioned before uh, in the last episode, the spider, one of their, they have a zero loadout item that's, I have fake documentation just for my do. identity. I just have it. It's a zero loadout. I can just walk up to the bouncer at the party and like, oh, here's my fake ID. Thank you, sir. And just walk in. That's not a problem. I think the cutter has like a couple knives it can have on them for free just because they expect to get into fights. So they just give that to them. The slide has a sword cane, which is a perfectly adequate weapon, but it's really hard to like detect. So like that's a neat little way for each playbook to interact with this system. And I, I love it. It's beautiful. I love all the teamwork actions. I love that they're simply the, I had a die to you. I, I love the protect rule. I really love how the group checks work because group checks are always hard yeah. in an RPG, right? If you're playing the rogue in D&D, if we're being realistic about it, you can't be anywhere near the party. You have to be very careful with the light source, like a hooded lantern or something, because if the fighter's running around in plate mail, like he's not gonna make that stealth check. It's just not gonna happen. You just need to, to deal with that. And I've seen a lot of games just hand wave and say like, fine, Everyone makes the check, and if half of you succeed, the group succeeds. And that's, like, fine. You know, it it's a good way to get the mechanic to, to hand wave it and let it go. It lets the rogue counterbalance the the paladin and plate mail. And it kind of averages out. But for this, I really love the teamwork option of everyone makes the check, and I'm the leader. And for every person who fails, I take a point of stress. But everyone gets to use the best result among the party, which is a great balancing issue because you're very, very likely to succeed. Yeah. Right. If everyone gets to roll, and probably I'm pretty good at it, hopefully, but if everyone gets to roll, you're probably going to at least get a partial success. You're likely going to get a complete success or maybe even a critical. But if I'm the guy who's trying to sneak everyone around and everyone else is terrible at this, I am definitely taking some stress. That's gonna happen. <laughs> and that's so great. Like it, it, that really ties into the thing we talked about earlier of assuming everyone is competent, but you're in over your head. I'm so right. good at being sneaky. I'm gonna get all you loud chumps into the place. I'm going to do it. Boy, am I gonna take some stress because it is so stressful getting you drunken buffoons right. and plate mail into this room, right? I, the spider, am going to manage to sweet talk all of you weirdos into the fancy gala. Then I'm immediately going to the bar and getting something <laughs> to drink. And that's like awesome. That's, that's, that's awesome. It is. It's great. It's great. It's a great, very likely to succeed, but it's going to have a cost. And I think that's a that's a great encapsulation of the entire game. But I, I particularly love that and will probably steal that for other games. As you should. Mm. Speaking Speaking of things I'd still, I'd also take the downtime rules. I really like them. Uh, the, the actions they give you are have a nice combination of, you know, getting things you need, recovering stress, which is a great mechanic, setting up long-term projects, making rituals. Like, all of the things are cool and interesting, and they, they give you something to think about and do and have a way for your character to advance without just ex using experience. But the other things that happen too, right? Going up in tier going into conflict with other factions, having random events happen, it really makes you feel that you're part of an immersive, interconnected world. You're not the only gang here. Other people are, are having issues and problems. While you did your big heist, a politician got assassinated. This is now going to be everyone's problem because now the guards are furious. It's a beautiful way to really make that evocative, intrigue, drama-laden, feeling that they want. The reason that it's so beautiful, the reason that it's such a good system is that it's still streamlined and fast. It lets you do that without slowing the game down and that that's like the real mastery. Of it. Like there are lots of games that like let you be immersive if that's what you want, but to be immersive without keeping you from moving forward, that's really rare. A great piece of advice they give you is if you as the GM have a thing that you want to be happening in the sidelines, right? You have some side plot that you want to introduce. You make your clocks um, and you, you have it show up and then you have it start tapping in downtime and eventually the PCs are going to have to deal with it or bad things happen. Which is fine, but they also say like, well, if you just don't have anything in the moment, you can use a random chart to roll and that can be introduced as a new side plot. I rolled, I got, a politician was assassinated. Great. I'm going to figure out who did it. I'm going to figure out why. I'm going to figure out why it matters to these people. And suddenly I have a whole side plot that even if they don't decide to interact with it, 
fills in the world. Someone else is doing something. Things are happening. The city's alive. And guess what? It's gonna make your life worse. <laughs> well, that's the assumption of, of everything yep. in this game. Yep. I mean, except for that next score. That next score me. will make your life so much better. Just, oh, one, yeah. just yeah. one more. Yeah, just one more. exactly. Just one more. I got a plan, Arthur. I swear. This time, Arthur, it's the last and, time. And I'm going to talk about it when we get to setting, but the the they do such a good job throughout of really trying to connect you to that world and giving you as many hooks as you want without dictating to you what happens next. The last thing is something we've actually talked about a lot, a lot. I love the playbooks. I've seen playbooks in other games, mostly powered by the Apocalypse games. And I think Blades in the Dark has my favorite iteration of them where it's much more flexible, uh, particularly because it's not that your playbook decides what you can do. It decides what, what you can do the easiest. Every playbook has an ability that's just once per once or twice per session, you can do a thing that would normally cost you stress without doing it. Boom, done. That's great. Or you can do this thing and you are more effective. Or you can do this thing and you you don't have to worry about the, the consequences aren't as bad, right? Like one of the cutter's abilities is I can spend stress and I can fight a group of people as if uh, without being at a disadvantage. That's yeah. huge. You probably don't want to do it a lot because you're still spending stress. But, you know, at the same time, they're cutting really great. I take out my knife. I look at the five guys in the alley who take out their knives. And I know for at least a few rounds, we're on equal footing. And that's really impressive. It makes me feel like a badass. So I think it's time now to do a much shorter list. We're all going to go through and do it again. <laughs> but this is the what we don't like about the system. Yeah. Again, so what don't you like about the system? Honestly, I really only have one thing. But it is, at least to me, a big thing. And that is, and maybe you all can help me with this. I might just be looking at it wrong. I have trouble conceptualizing going from room to room in a heist in this game. It seems like a lot of disconnected choose-your-own-adventure. When you mean room to room, you mean like on a score yeah. when you're doing yeah. something? Yeah, like so we've we've entered the, the house and... Sure. Okay, well, there's, you know, from there, it's kind of, it's an, almost entirely up to the GM as far as how much and how little do you describe and what options you're presenting the players with. And I get that that's part of the creativity of it, but for a system that in many ways offers so many options for other things as far as creating a scene, to me it's surprising that they don't have some rules for guiding you through the intricacies of a hut. So normally when someone is GMing, they have two equal things they have to keep. The story slash helping the players and the mechanics slash the own sheets of their NPCs, right? This game takes half of that off the table for you and assumes that you're going to spend all of the effort that you would have spent keeping track of NPCs just describing stuff. And so I, I think that might be why they don't have rules. I still understand that that's a, a, a totally solid thing to be to, to not enjoy, but I think that's why they don't have it, because they assume that your GM is going to be able to do that more in this game than they would in other games, because that's their only responsibility here. They've cut their responsibilities in half. I would also say that to some extent, this is a combination of the initial engagement role, uh, a clock perhaps, and a fortune roll or two along the way. Uh, whether or not the uh, whether or not this window is on the right side of the house, perhaps. Yeah. Whether or not there's anyone upstairs who will intercept you. Uh, strung kind of along the way like that. I just, a lot of, and of course, I, a lot of what I'm, I guess the reference I'm coming from is when you enter a room in Dishonored, like the, the windowsill or the front door or however you choose to get into a building in Dishonored where the heist is really started, you know, you're going to look around the room and there's, there's stuff there. Of course there's stuff. I would have appreciated a chart or two to give you some suggestions on a layout. But like Jared said, you know, it is so, it's so low effort on the NPC side that, yeah, I guess you, you know, you can spend your time coming up with a floor plan. I think it is very different from most games where they're giving you so much free space to do what you want. It's kind of the, like, paralyzing. Yeah, I could see the same heist with two different GMs taking 20 minutes or four hours. And neither one would be bad or wrong, you know, and maybe that's 
what makes part of what makes it so intriguing to people. And I think that's also just kind of learning the table and just what what elements are are people going to focus on either from the player side or the storyteller side. See, I mean, yeah. So as far as mechanics, honestly, that's really all I disliked. Um, I had some more broad stroke dislikes with the with the fiction that we'll talk about later on. But for now, um, Helen, you're up. Uh, so in my case, it's. I don't have strong dislikes about uh, about the mechanics here, in part because there there was nothing that jumped out at me that made me think, ah, this is going to be a barrier to my fun, which is kind of the purpose of the mechanics. How does it serve, you know, how does it serve my fun? Uh, but I, I I would say that I think the game does have strengths and weaknesses depending on what you want out of it. For instance, I think if you want a if you want a long running campaign where you play one set of characters the whole time, um, I I think that maybe while you can do that, that's not necessarily what this game expects, and perhaps that's not using it to its best advantage. Uh, I think that it it kind of wants to be a bit more of a we play this um, maybe not infrequently maybe this is our, our regular weekly or bi-weekly game but maybe we do have a, a, a rotating ca- um, rotating cast of characters in the same gang or, or in different gangs uh, we, it kind of wants to be a series of vignettes strung together and and if you do it that way then I think you'll see much more of the setting that they put together so less of a dislike and more of strengths and weaknesses uh, and probably my second thing was, I, I, it's so different to what my standard experience is in, in these sorts of games, that you don't have that obligatory session and a half ahead of time where you talk about the plan, talk about all the ways the plan could go wrong, and then the next session, spend the first you know, two hours talking about the plan again just to make sure you got it all right, and then ultimately none of, no part of your plan works. Uh, if you cut all that out and you just go with the engagement and the flashbacks, I'm almost, uh, I'm almost left wondering, well, oh, wow, I have no idea how that'll look like in play. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, if anything, that's another reason that Jared needs to run this game at some point. But <laughs> it, 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 it's something that I would definitely want to see played out. Uh, and I, I, I would hesitate to even propose an opinion on, on any of the more complex mechanics within it until I'd had a chance to run it because it's just so logistically different from other options. And I don't I've think had. I've seen a game where flashbacks are as I mean, prevalent. that's fair. It is a very different game from most. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I yes. mean, the engagement, the fact that the engagement rule starts you off on the rooftop, that's such a different mindset from really any of the other games that I have experience with. Flashbacks are present in other systems. I know that I believe City of Mists has them, for instance. I know that they are out there, but they require you to be thinking kind of in a different direction than standard. Rather than doing all that planning at the beginning, you're free to do all that planning as you go. And so it's just a different mindset as integral, really. Like you, yeah. you have to do them. And now the things I don't like, um, the things I don't like are small and are, are nitpicky, but, but are present. So the strange things, demons, ghosts, hulls, there doesn't seem to be any that are moderately powerful. They all seem to either be weak or incredibly strong. And like, that just seems like a weakness. Why wouldn't you build one or two that were like, middle of the road for when your characters are a middle tier. Like it's either their entry level stuff or their oh god stuff. And that seems like an oversight to me. And the second issue, so attributes and action ratings seem to be working a little against each other for me. The action ratings, you know, this this game's version of skills want you to generalize and they want you to be fluid and, and move across multiple strengths and weaknesses. And the attributes want you to focus on everything in one category. And so that, I think, creates a tension and might create an opportunity to build your character poorly. The only reason I say that that's a minor dislike here, unlike other games, is 
as we've talked about before, if you do don't like it, all you have to do is do some role play and you can fix it. I think that this is possible to build your character wrong because of that tension, but I don't think it's going to have long in-game consequences because they put in rules to fix it. I would imagine that it's the opposite. Your attributes want you to generalize because they want you to take the first dot in every action rating you can, whereas the action ratings themselves, you know, I'm going to be better at skirmish, so I'm better in a fight. But the attributes want you to focus on that category of action rating. Sure, physical or mental or social, right, right. Yeah, the action ratings don't give you any bonuses or penalties for mixing mental and physical, and so they want you to be good at thinking and fighting, whereas the attributes want you to put points in sure. all of the physical ones, right? And that creates a weird tension for me. Yeah, I guess that's something we just, we'd have to play and have multiple characters and see, like, you know, I didn't specialize in anything. I, I spread my points out. And how does that affect me? I mean, again, I think it's a minor dislike because even if it is it's as fixable. bad a problem as I imagine it to be. Right. It's you not can like, play your way out oh, of it. nope, sorry. You right. didn't take generation as a background. <sighs> Vampire yeah. the Masquerade. Oh, well. <laughs> what do you mean you have an Arate of less than three? Sad for you. <laughs> yeah, that was a silly choice, Helen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, that got real personal. <laughs> real personal real fast guys so <laughs> the family friendly show my dislike is as they're explaining the system to you they explain something and because it's an interconnected system as all systems are they have to reference other parts of the mechanics they haven't gotten to yet perfectly normal but when they do that sometimes they give you a a brief description of the mechanics before they actually introduce them so they might explain like okay here's how consequence rules work and give you a brief description and great and you you read it you get it you move on but then you get to several pages later like well here's consequence rules in their full. And that actually stumbled me up a bit. I felt like having to relearn something, even though it was now with more detail, and this is where they really expect you to learn it, was for some reason, I didn't like that. I didn't, I felt like I was, I think once or twice I thought that I had like lost my page and gone out of place. I want to be clear, Ryan is being gentle here when he says a few pages later. There's one where it's like... Yes, like 20 yeah, or 30 pages You're like pages 45 later. pages later, you're actually teaching me the system we've been talking about for the last 40 pages. That's weird. And it, it definitely falls into the category of things I mentioned before. We're like, I don't like this thing. I don't know how to fix this thing or how I do it differently, but I don't like it. Which I think comes at, I see a lot in layout, which... I don't know, perhaps explains to me that there's an entire profession where people who do layout and edit things. So hmm. somebody's entire Something job. About later. Almost like that's an, yeah. an important right. skill set. Almost. Usually in games, when they introduce something like that, they give maybe a one sentence explanation or, or not even that and say, rules for this can be found on this page and then move on. And maybe just briefly explaining how it works. And this, they give you more of that, but reference it much later. I feel the flow of the mechanics section, explaining how the, how it worked, could have been a little bit better. But that's it. If we're going to mention that, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to mention that, uh, admittedly, I bought this off of DriveThruRPG, so the character sheet comes in a separate download, but there's no character sheet in the book. Yeah, it's lame. It's true. I mean, it didn't sure, bother me, to be honest, once I realized what they were doing. Um, but I, yeah. I do understand that's that as a, that's an as a incredibly complaint. nitpicky thing that's that is purely me. Um, and the character sheet that you do get when you buy it off a drive through RPG is beautiful and very useful and very well laid out. I just would have liked to see it in the character creation section. I mean, I think that that encapsulates how we as a group feel about this game. When we were talking about the things that we liked, we were talking about big picture, yeah. important to the game stuff. And when we were talking about stuff we didn't like, it's well like, hey, layout guy, we wish you'd done things a little different, right? But not that much. We do love you and the work that you did. Right. Shout out to editors. Um, yes. Yeah. And like, <laughs> right. I, we would still give you a hug. Are really excited about this game. And, and secret spoiler, I might like Scum and Villainy even more. All right. Well, I'm Ryan, the Spark Craft Rules guy. I'm Helen, the Unseen Storyteller. I'm Ben, the Last Player. I'm Jared, the Flashback Game Master, and together we have been the Starting Equipment Podcast. Please join us next week as we finish up our rendition of the Blades in the Dark podcast that we have been impersonating for the last month. We will be finishing up with our last episode on setting. Maybe one day I'll even believe.